we are very much in a fast-moving industry that is extremely competitive and, and what we see is the need to constantly evolve. The most important transfer world skill that will become important for leaders in, in, in the coming years is the ability or the capacity. Is Omar Barada the biggest signing for Manchester United in the last 10 years? Guys, welcome to a brand new edition of Full-Time Reds. I'm really excited today for the podcast because um, so much news broke over the weekend regarding the CEO position. And you know what? Unlike others, I didn't want to go live or do a podcast just straight off the bat. I wanted to spend a bit of time researching, finding out more about the new CEO, the direction and other news, and just analyzing what reputable journalists like the, uh, on The Athletic and other publications have been saying. So today I'm joined by Paul, who's been on the podcast with us before. And if you don't know Paul, you will know Paul because he spends that much time at <laughs> spaces debating people and having fights with them. Paul, how are you doing? Bad, not too bad, mate. I wouldn't call it fights, I'll call it uh, aggressive um, arguments. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know what? Paul's been doing some great work in Twitter Spaces for what? Since the takeover started, really. And that's how I've got to know Paul. So on the, um, Saturday, let's get into this, Paul. Well, today, Paul, just quick overview what we're going to cover. I'm going to cover the CEO, which we'll go into, the new position, how he's come about it, what the general views are of him. The next appointments that are going to come in, so who we think, me and you, will look at who we think will be the next appointments. The Qatar issue, even if it is it even an issue with the SEC statement. The training ground and what we've heard this morning regarding the changes and what they're going to do with that. And lastly, I ask every guest every week, will Ten Hag survive or not? So let's start with the big news on the weekend. Omar Barada, who re I'm going to be honest, I had not heard, heard of him, you know, before this news broke. Um, obviously, I've researched into him, his, what he is, what it's all about. What are your views on him becoming the new CEO? Well, it's it's an extreme positive kind of move. Um, I've talked to a few people that, you know, just around, uh, there was a couple of candidates inside United that the Glazers were looking to do, and Colette Roach was one of the big names who is our CEO at the moment. And... This CEO appointment has been quick. It's been straight to the point. First contact made in December. Nobody had an idea about it. And it's a guy that has been around football for most of his career in different positions. And like any good CEO in a specific field, he's done a lot of different areas. Marketing, he's done the business side. He's then moved on to the sporting side and uh, to be honest, I was shocked, but very well impressed how this has all come about. Well, you know what the interesting thing about this is, and like you said, it's quite impressive, is that, number one, United previously would draw out, uh, drag out a, 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 a transfer and appointment. It's played out publicly in the press. You know, by the time the transfer, the appointment has been made, it's just killed the buzz. You know, we've witnessed that with, so many transfers and so many um, important positions that have been filled. Like you said, it's quite interesting how this has come about because reading this morning when I was looking into it, they approached him in December and it was done pretty quickly. Nobody had an idea. And I guarantee he was not even on anybody's radar. And most people didn't even know who he was outside of um, executive positions or outside of Man City. Do you, how much influence do you think Ineos have had on this and this whole approach? 
Uh, quite a lot. Uh, this is clearly an appointment that's outside the normal remit. Um, I've had a, I've heard a couple of people saying, "Oh, this is nothing to do with any else. This is a straight executive kind of headhunt," and they were looking at him anyway. The reports are David Brailsford approached him. He was the head of finding identifying him. But one interesting thing is the announcement. This announcement was not planned. What has yeah. happened here, um, you can quite clearly see, is he's left his position at City. City have informed the media that he's leaving his position before they give their official statement. They've been like, well, why is he leaving? Somebody's told him he's going to Manchester United. Within two hours, we've had a statement then from Manchester United. And what's very interesting about this statement is, unlike every other executive position statement, be it manager, be it CEO, there's been no quote from the co-chairmans, either Avram or Joel. So this is obviously a situation there where you could say Ineos's influence has come in because Ineos has gone, this news is out. We need to go now and say this is the situation. And that statement is basically being drawn up, produced, and no input from the Glazers whatsoever in the statement. It's a pure club statement, how they usually should be. And it, you could just say, that's not a Glazer MO. News breaks, everybody hears about it straight away within two hours, an unplanned statement is released about it. it, it, it he's not a Glazer person. He, 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 how he operates, the way he talks, does not sound like somebody that people would say when the CEO issue about Blunt came around, oh, the Glazers are going to pick their man to kind of pit the balance. That guy's as far away from a Glazer appointment as you can get. You know, Paul, well, the quite interesting thing was I was listening, and I don't know if you've heard the... Uh, Talk of the Devils podcast come out this morning. I was listening to that before we come on air. And they were saying that David Ornstein's uh, tweet forced the hand of everyone <laughs> because he broke it and then they had no option but to kind of clarify it. With United, what I found really interesting, and, and I'm going over this again, is that nobody knew this. You know, and it's just boom, like out of the blue. You know, people are going on about Blanc, and then when they said Blanc isn't coming on, he's staying on the board. Then it's like, okay, we'll find out. And it just, boom. And where the interesting thing is, is that it, it starts to show where the leaks were coming from. They, you know, they're coming it, from inside the club. Inside <laughs> the club. And they were using it to drive engagement. And it's a positive step. It is a positive step. What do you think of his... Um, Obviously, everybody's seen his few because everybody went and probably searched him, searched on YouTube about him. There's clips of him from the City YouTube channel and there's him on his recruitment as well where he's doing a, a talk. What's your impressions of him? What do you think he bring to the table? I think, from listening to the way he talks, and to be quite honest, he's quite similar in the fashion of when you're talking about a management style, quite similar to Sir Jim Radcliffe. His whole management style is corporation the idea is everybody working on the same page, everybody operating to the same goal, which makes it seem like he's not going to be a man that's going to come along and stamp his foot down and say, this is the way I want to run things. He's going to be a man that's going to come in and talk to people, have collaborations with people, work out what is the best way to do stuff. Like you listen to any of the podcasts he talks, he talks about all departments working together for the same goal. So you can kind of see generally where the consensus of how this Ineos operation is going to work. Um, with him, the way he talks, you have the likes of, we're not looking for one sporting director, we're looking like for a, a sporting director and a head of recruitment. So you can kind of kind of see where it's all coming together. It's all about cooperation. 
everybody on the same page, working for the same goal. But if something's not going wrong, you don't have to tear everything down. You can just take one person out and replace them. So he's a very, very good indication of that there. And plus his management level is probably quite very high. Like everybody says he's going to a higher position as a CEO, but has his as a CFO at City. He was in charge of 14 different clubs. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he was managing. So he, he, just the way he talks is just very encouraging. His current role is pretty much he, he he's the one below CEO where he does the day-to-day running basically. So he was in charge. Um, it's not much of a difference between position. All it is as CEO. It's much of a broader strategy position. But he's obviously... Um, He's been in this position a long time. It's not like they just appointed him yesterday and then he's young gone to Manchester United. I found it very interesting that he's also worked on transfers because the clips that are going around and you've seen on YouTube where he sits in on transfers and he understands transfers, which I find is the biggest Achilles heel for Manchester United. And I think that'll be an interesting input into this. His 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 background, obviously, is sponsorship as well. He was at, I think he, from what I read this morning, and um, he was part of the UNICEF deal at Barcelona and the TV5 deal uh, there as well, which was which was very impressive for them at the time. And what was interesting was he, he said when he went to City in 2011 and he worked in sponsorship and he started from zero and he, they used to ring brands and nobody was entertaining them really and how it grew. So he's sitting from the bottom. This is Manchester United, as you know, is a different beast. It's not hard to sell. It's more about having the right people in place and building onto that and, and, and moving forward with that. Obviously, over the next few weeks, we'll cover that in more detail and what he does and, and more we find out about him. But what do you think the next Ineos appointments are going to be and who do you think they will be? To be honest, I think the next set of appointments we're probably maybe not going to hear about. I think the next set of appointments are going to be the guys that he wants to bring on under him to work under him because people it's not just your ceo it's not just your sporting director it's also the team of people that they have under them be it their assistants be it the people for head of departments so we may not see them the next big publicized ones are most likely going to be uh your sporting director or your head of recruitment i think head of recruitment may come in after uh the deal has been totally ratified um because i think any else have probably been working with their choice of head of recruitment I think it's going to be Paul Mitchell. I think uh, they're going to basically bring him in. They've obviously been working with Ineos and him, so maybe they don't want to bring him in yet until they're officially in the door. Now, sporting director, Dan Ashworth, if it is going to be him, I would expect that around the same time as well because he's going to come under the same problem that um, our CEO has, which he's going to have a small garden and leave to go in. He's not allowed to work for United for the next six months like officially and be working on the background. So they're the USD. Yeah, well, you can't officially sit on the board. You can't officially be employed by Manchester United, but you could be sitting talking to any else as an advisor and getting his people in place when he uh, for when he actually takes over. That it happens a lot of the time. But I think the director of football and uh, the head of recruitment are going to be the next two big ones. And I would expect that just the pure PR terms to come very quickly after ratification because when you come in, you want to show that you mean business. And quite clearly, as much as people may doubt how well Sir Jim Radcliffe's going to do, it, he's if he feels it's not going to be a feel of lack of trying, and the CEO appointment shows that, he's going in aggressive, very aggressive, 
and he's done that in a lot of businesses he's had. He's made mistakes when he did it in Nice because he came in aggressive with his own people. This time around for Manchester United, he's coming in aggressive with sporting people, people from other areas. There's a clip of him on YouTube if you go to the Ineos' YouTube channel and, and I think it was filmed in March before the bidding process for money that really April it was, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and he mentions how you cannot fail with a club like he calls it brand, but people took it out of context. He was saying it's very you it, the 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 impact of it is like really bad. You can't fail at a club like Manchester, which I found very interesting. You know, just coming on to the sporting director, do you see it being that Ashworth, or do you see somebody like Andrea Berta or somebody out of the blue that nobody expects, like with disappointment? It could be somebody. The the reason why I think it's Dan Ashford is looking at the CEO appointment. Uh, talking about collab and best in class and also building a structure is Dan Ashford as a sporting director I don't think is probably one of the best sporting directors set to bring in to help you with your transfer policy you know to help you identify talents and stuff like that what Dan Ashford's best thing is he's there to build your structure you know you look at the work Dan Ashford did for uh, the England national team he built that he built that there from the ground up. There was nothing before. Yes, England maybe hasn't won stuff, but the trade, the how they're bringing the youth through St James's Park and stuff like that. There, that's what he would be there for to get all that. Then you have somebody underneath. So I'm not I'm, as I say, you don't really know about these guys in the background because some like nobody knows about this city gang because unlike every other club, Manchester United, every position you're under scrutiny. And other clubs, not so much. Nobody reports on it. Also, they're not they're not uh, glamorous positions, right? Like technical no. director. Most people came across technical director when Maldini became a technical director, and everybody knew Maldini and thought, "Oh, technical. What is a technical?" Usually, they're not yeah. sexy positions. CEOs. Michael Edwards. Michael Edwards wouldn't have been known if he hadn't did his work. What he did with Klopp. Uh, Paul Mitchell wouldn't have been known for. The only reason Paul Mitchell got into such a big limelight was because of the the. The young talent he brought through that the bigger clubs bought up. You know, he identified that young talent, brought it through, they went to the bigger clubs. A lot of these guys go under the radar for years. Unless you're at an extremely big club, you don't get noticed. So I just think Dan Ashford, if it looks like the way they're setting up their structure, is a natural choice. And plus, he has the connections with Brailsford. And that's the main thing. When you're looking to build a structure, you need to bring in people that are experts in the area but we'll also have good connections with you as well because if you have a good working relationship and you're an expert, everything can work together, come together, and the, what would you call it, the fluency between the team members yeah. would be good. Communication to be well, you want to be able to work together, you've got to be able to yeah. work with people that work with egos, they can work together, that high-profile club, pull in one direction. Yeah, it's not jobs for the boys as in what the Glazers yeah. said is. Jobs for your friends that are in the areas and are what you would call best in class. And if you're looking at Dan Ashford, he is one of the top guys for what if he knows the, the what you want. He knows the league. He knows English yeah. football as well. Um, like you said, one of the biggest things about if you're coming from abroad to Manchester United is the scrutiny, which some people really find difficult um, to kind of deal mm-hmm. with. Um, I think you're right. I think the two positions will come next. Um, director of football and uh, head of transfers. Head, head, head of recruitment. Head of recruitment. Head I think. Of, God knows yeah. what the titles will be, but they'll be important think, people, no matter what their title is. Yeah, and I think I think um, you know it's interesting to see 
things moving in this kind of direction because normally we're not used to this. And I think what they are doing is they are setting up towards the summer and that's what they're going for is the summer. Hence why we're not seeing much activity in this window. And, um, but it's, it's positive steps in my opinion. You know, it's, it's positive steps. I know a lot of people were wanted, wanted Qatar, which we're going to come on to next. But the end is the guy, he's in charge now. We've got to get behind him. We've got to support the decisions. A lot of people, or I was watching a lot of the other fan channels yesterday, and they were saying, we'll see what he does. Well, he's not even in charge. He's already making moves. So what more do you want him to do? You know? He can't... Yeah, as I say, as I say it's, even if he feels, it's not for your lack of trying. It's not for your lack of effort. Because he's going after the, you know, he's going after somebody that is well-respected, a big name, and rival. You know, it's very rarely you get a player coming from a rival, never mind poaching one of their top footballing guys. That's a quite a big deal as well. Oh, do you know, do you know the interesting thing is, um, this, usually if we, some people might say, oh, they're just paying him more. Well, say he could pay him more, right? There's no issue with money. It, what I read I, 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 I was, I think it was in Ornstein's article, one of the articles, he was bought into the project. So, the, so whatever they are planning, he's obviously bought into that part. You know what? Yeah, I'm I'm feeling. He was way. the first one. He was the first one. Yeah. He was the first one out of the out of the group. You talk about he was the first one brought in. He absolutely. And secondly, what the interesting thing is is that he was in line to be promoted at City whenever the top guys left. And third, <laughs> he could have gone anywhere. You know, he could have gone to the NFL. He could have gone to. But he, he had all. Yeah, he's had offers. He, apparently, he's had multiple offers from not just you know, football, American sports as well. And the interesting thing, what I find is for him to give up all that to come across here, you think, okay, there's something going on that obviously we're not aware of, which he's bought into. And I've, as time goes on, we'll be more aware of it. And I found that really interesting. But a lot of people are trying to play it down. And you know how it is with, with the social media. And um, yeah, well, a lot of people do play these things down because they don't see it as a big deal. But I'll put it in a way that people may understand and I'll put it in a way the Twitter crowd. Manchester United pipping this guy is like if um, Microsoft rocked up to PlayStation and said, see your head of game developments? He's now over at Microsoft. It's, it's, it's a, it's, you're taking the guy that's sitting at the top, which is PlayStation, you're taking one of their, their guys that helped build their structure and you're bringing them over to Microsoft. You know, that is a big deal in the business world that very rarely happens. Very rarely happens. Paul, and you know another thing is well, I feel in this whole process, we've you've covered it a lot, I've covered it a lot since this takeover started. I felt, and I think if I remember correctly, I said this to you in one of the podcasts. I said, Jim Radcliffe, this guy's no mug. You know, he was being portrayed as just some guy with a bit of money, and he's not, the guy's got more wealth on paper than Sheikh Jassim had, he, and he's self-made. He's not some some just some guy that's just rocked up with a top. You know, he's he's a serious player, and he he's, he's, he he's more money than Todd Bowley. He's more money than Todd Bowley and Roman Abramovich combined on paper, as you say, on paper. He's got yeah. only the Sheikh Mansour on on paper. Well, yeah, but the Sheikh Mansour is backed by the country. Well, so <laughs> yeah, no, like if you're talking like personal levels, and it's yeah. it's it depends on like two months. Yeah, he's no he's no dickhead, is he? Like he's no, not just some no. guy that's got your money and he's just gonna come on here and, and build his own. He's got he's built a serious business that does serious revenue, right? And the the most important thing is he is a football fan. 
So he has some fucking idea on what he's doing. It's not like Ted Pod Bowley coming in and spending a billion and making Chelsea look worse than what he took over. So well, they made their mistakes already. When he went into this, he made their mistakes. When he went into the oh, I can't even remember off the top of my head the other club he has. Yeah, when he he made their mistakes, he slightly made the same. He almost made the same mistakes in Nice as well, but. You can quite clearly see from the first appointment, he has learned from their mistakes. He knows, and I think I said this to you before, and this is the evidence of it. I think, remember when I said on the podcast when we were talking about the Nice, and I said, when you're buying Manchester United, the people that you bring in to them league positions are going to be of a higher caliber than what you can bring into Nice. And if you look at it right now, would you think your Jim Radcliffe would be able to rock up the city or Brilster, whoever it is, went to that CFO? and go, do you want to come and be the CEO of Nice? He would have gone, no. But when yeah. you talk to these top people and say, do you want to come and be the CEO of a new project to revitalize Manchester United? Like, apparently, if the first contact was made in December, he's made that decision in less than a month to go, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, where's my contract? <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's a different proposition as well, isn't it? It's a different beast. You'd be. Different higher caliber of people you can bring in. Talking of different beast. You know, over the last week or so, we saw the SEC filing and how the process went. Now, obviously, Qatar have come out and said um, what's being said is we did show a proof of funds. So these guys are saying there wasn't a proof of funds. What are your thoughts on this? I think this may actually be a bit of a misunderstanding because a lot of people are saying they're asking for a corrective statement shows then that Manchester United have lied. I don't think that may be the case. What I think may be the case is, um, sorry, I have this here, or I saved the part of it on my phone here. I think they had a, pro I think they had a problem with the way they showed the proof of funds. Because if anybody's ever bought a house, like especially, I, I'm in process of doing this one, if you're going for co-ownership, the co-ownership people won't take mortgage and proof of funds off certain banks. And I think this is where maybe Qatar has gone on the problem because I think maybe they did show proof of funds, uh, but it wasn't relevant to the process. Uh, when you're doing like underwriting for buying a company or buying shares, generally they would say you have to use an underwriter in America. According to the leaks that have come out from the newspaper, they use QMB, which is the Qatar National Bank. The Qatar National Bank shows, yes, we have the funding. This guy has the funds. It may just be that... Um, what you call it yeah but they didn't use them as the proof of funds they used qmb for it but if you look at the sec filings on when they were doing the bid their last bid which was august 2023 to october 2026 at the last paragraph it says uh where just uh, during the course of such negotiations representatives of manchester united continue to inform better aid that the board of directors was not prepared to move forward with the transactions whereby the holders of Class A, Class B shares aren't parallel. Also, they were, the directors require significant evidence of the financing and customary commitment papers. So I think maybe the way they were trying to show their funds wasn't how the Rain Group, uh, you know, the Rain Group has their own rules in their process, and they're saying the way you're showing these do not fit into our rules. Now, yeah. if that's the case, maybe Qatar then did come in with a verbal offer and said, look, we'll match the Class A shares, we'll match the Class B shares, and we'll give you this. But if they didn't commit that in paper as an official offer, it doesn't get put into the SEC filings because it's irrelevant. 
So what you may find is the corrective statement is Qatar did show proof of funds, but the proof of funds were not in the realms of the rules of the process. So United are quite rightfully within the right to not mention that there because if it's not in the realms of the rules of the process, you don't have to mention it. And there's an example in the process as well to show how it should work. Sir Jim Radcliffe in a meeting gave a verbal agreement that he would up his bid to $33 a share for 25%. In the next paragraph, they said, on that verbal agreement, he then came back to us with a written proposal, proof of funds to show that that bid was valid. Now, the reason they mentioned that verbal agreement in that space is because he came back with the proof and actually put an offer on the table. If you just give a if they talk to the Glazers or talk to Ringer and go, yeah, we'll give you $35 a share, but don't put it on paper. You don't mention it in the, in the filings. And to be fair to how people perceive it, if Qatar did say a verbal agreement, yeah, we'll match their class A, class B shares, and we'll give you $34 a share for each verbally, but Ned didn't put it on paper, I think that made them look worse because they were talking the talk, but they didn't back it up. So I think this is yeah, just, I, it's going to be a northern burger. I think um, you're right in what you're saying. I think they had a, I think in my opinion, if you remember, I was thinking back when um, David Onstein brought the news that the, the Glazers were chasing Al-Khalifi, telling them to speak to him. I think this is what was going on at the time, trying to get the proof of funds going on. But I don't even think I don't even think it was the Glazers looking for more money off Qatar. I think even that could have been them going, you need to tell these guys for legal reasons, you need to match the A class and B shares. Maybe they've went down to try and and the, the other problem you have is everybody thinks this was a Sheikh Hassim bid. This uh, if you listen to the media coming out of Qatar, it was a Qatari consortium. Now the problem with a Qatar uh, if any type of consortium be it Qatar American, British, is all your money is in different places. So if you're wanting to go ahead with a bid in this, the reason why you use a bank underwriter is because the bank underwrites the thing and says, yes, even if these guys don't pay the money, the bank will cover the money. And usually consortiums do that because they have a one bank saying, yeah, to pull all that money together, maybe some of the people in the consortium were going, that's too expensive for us. We're pulling our money out. That's too much money for us. I don't think it was... The way it was portrayed was this guy's a father. He's got the he's got the money. His father's very wealthy. They've got the money. I think they didn't have the money. Not every sheikh in the Middle East like has loads of money. Sheffield United are owned by a sheikh. Doesn't mean they have loads and loads of money. I think he had a set limit. And I think um, the other issue what I read was regarding A and B shares. But I just think it was he just didn't have the have the resources at that time to do the deal, which is basically what it was. And uh, it shows it in the filings, you know, you know, there's no reason for anybody to lie. There's a, you know, and I just felt it got, um, and I think people that really bet their house on um, Qatar are now trying to save a bit of face, in my opinion. Just just on the filings as well, if you listen, no, the 9-2 Foundation probably doesn't exist anymore. I'll be, I'll be clear on that. They probably don't have the lawyers anymore. They don't have their uh, PR teams anymore. So that's why the term has changed to the bidding party because the actual foundation set up may exist on paper, but the actual governance of that doesn't exist. But the way they're talking about in all the reports is they want a corrective statement because facts were left out. It's not because somebody lied. It's not because the Glazers are trying to hoodwink or the lawyers are trying to hoodwink the the shareholders. It's... They're trying to save face by saying, yes, we had the money. That money was there, but the 
just the Rain Group wouldn't accept our proof of funds. They, for whatever reason, they wouldn't accept it. So even if they do get a corrective statement on that, nobody's getting done for fraud. Nobody's going to prison. Nobody's going to jail because they're the one thing about when you lie in an SEC document um, where you get the fines, the fraudulent things, is where you've lied to prevent uh, either your company being devalued, or you've lied to your investors to make more money, so you've upped your how much revenue you've had, so investors, your share price will go up. There has to usually be a monetary value advantage before the SEC come down with the big, big damaging you're not allowed to be a director on the company on the New York Stock Exchange. You're going to federally be done for fraud because you have to have something out of it. And I have asked this question, why lie in this document? What do the Glazers get out of it? What do Manchester United get out of it? And also, is it worth the risk lying on the document as well? Yep. And you know, nobody answers that. With a high-profile purchase like this, could you imagine if some of the money couldn't be could be linked to all sorts and it wasn't checked out properly, and then a yes. high-profile purchase goes through? It'd be a disaster, you know. It'd be a disaster oh. to a point where, you know, sponsors could pull out. It could be. So I understand why they wanted a strict proof of funds because it's a strict process and people can get sued and all sorts. So not only that, not only that, you have like uh, you've you've seen about the sixty-six million. Uh, compensation fee if the deal falls through for the Radcliffe deal. Qatar would have had some sort of sort of similar thing in that. And then imagine they go to the Premier League Premier League. Because if you if it's happened with uh seven seven football with Leeds, they looked into their finances and they're like, where's this money coming from? And they've still made the whole thing. Uh, yeah, Everton, sorry. And they've looked and gone, where's this money coming from? And this uh, um one of the remits that was reported way back last February. One of the remits the Reed Group had was the winning bidder had to have the ability to pass a fit and proper test by the Premier League. So yes, they would look heavily in at money. And as I said, even if they do do a corrective statement, nothing's going to change. The deal's not going to fall apart. The Premier League aren't going to pay any attention to that because the Premier League, they don't look at the deal that's caused the takeover or the sale of shares to happen. They look at the person buying the shares. Does he have the money? Has he been done for fraud? Can he own a British company? Tick, 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 tick. Fine. Yeah, move on. Well, you know, one thing, I, I DM'd you this as well. I just want to go over this as well, just just, just whilst you reminded me. Do you remember in the SEC, it said they would have accepted at like $34, $35 a share? The yes, yes, yeah. Uh, 35 25 Yeah, something like that. Why do you think Jim Radcliffe didn't just bid that and just take the whole thing? Um, money. Um... Yeah, and I didn't need a massive amount of investment. And if you look through his filings as well, his original bid was 60% of the Glazer's shares, which would be about 35% of the company at $33 a share. And then the rest of the shares bought out over a three-year period, a four-year period. It's liquid cash. It's like, yes, we're going to have to do investments into the company. So what's the point of me doing an outlay of four or five billion pounds and then having to do another outlay of 300, 600 million? Plus also, you have the change of control aspect. Once he does the change of control, debts need to be sorted out. There's a lot more work involved. So doing it bit by bit is actually a little bit more better in a sense of getting United back on its feet because he's come in, he's got sporting control. He sorts sporting control out. That's his main focus right now. Then he starts to buy more shares. And then once he hits that change control aspect, 
that's when he has to look at the debts. That's when he has to look at uh, changing around the company, a lot more lawyer work. So putting your focus on the main area first and then going off after it is actually just a good way of doing it. And plus also deals of six or four or five, six billion pounds up, they generally don't happen in one purchase unless you're an extremely cash rich person. Like you're a Microsoft and Amazon and Apple where you have billions and billions and billions of pounds in cash just sitting in a bank account. So you would usually do it bit by bit. What did what did that value? Uh, what was the value that thirty five dollars share was about five six billion? I think it was. I think if I remember correctly, if it was thirty five dollars a share, taking the debt into account, you are talking over just about the six billion pound market because you have the enterprise value and the value per share. But once yeah, yeah, they buy the club yeah. for thirty five, you add the debt on top of it. The so it would be around the six billion pound mark. Yeah. So even the $34 that they offered for the B shares, that would have been around the mark as well with debt and all included as close to the $6 billion as apparently everybody was going at that the Glaciers would want. You know, there was a, there was a, there was an article last last week or the week before. It was, it, it was um, very misleading where they said in 18 months, Jim Ratcliffe could be forced to sell. What yeah. were your thoughts on that? Just to clarify that point up as well. It came out, but this was also in the original filing back in December the 26th, and then everybody's jumped on it. Yeah, that is a standard legal clause. Um, if they didn't put that drag on, uh, tag on clause in, that deal could have been legally challenged by the A-class shareholders because Sir Jim's been given a lot of protections as a minority investor in this company. The Glazers can't take the football control away from him, he has total control over all of that aspect and it's legally guaranteed. The only time he can lose control of that is if he drops his shareholding below 15%. The Glazers have to vote in the board members that Enios pit up. They're not allowed to vote against it, so they can never vote out Blunt. They can never vote out Brailsford. It's basically Enios get two seats on the football board, two seats on the PLC board, whatever name they pit forward for them seats, the Glazers are legally bound to vote them in in a shareholder meeting. So that drag on, that 18-month clause is there to so the A-share class holders can go, hold on a second, he can never leave. So that means he's the only person that realistically can buy shares of the company. Because if somebody comes along and puts a public tender offer in, Sir Jim has the voting power to block any tender offer. Because you need over 75% of the vote, and he has 30% of the vote. So he can block any takeover deal. So you have to actually put that clause in. But in saying that as well, even if somebody comes in, say in 18 months, comes along, goes, I'm going to offer the Glazers $40 to share for 100 We'll put it in round numbers, actually, to make it easier. Say if somebody comes along and goes, I'm going to offer £10 billion for Manchester United. Okay, Sir Jim gets that offer on the table. So this company is now worth £10 billion. I can now buy it for 7 I already have 30% of the holdings. Also, another thing that people feel to talk about and feel to mention, Sir Jim doesn't have to do it himself. Sir Jim can go along and to one of his many business partners in the world and do what he did at Mercedes goes, except for the opposite way around, where he goes, I'll own 52% of this company. You invest 48% of the company will take a private. I've been running this company basically for three years. We're being successful. The value's now at 10 billion. What's it going to be like in 15 years? He can bring other partners in. He doesn't have to buy it all himself. He just has to get that majority control and then bring a partner in, which he's done before. So 
do you think do you think he'll start buying more shares up pretty quickly or what's your kind of thought on that on the last point on this it depends how quickly the other glazers wants to sell if some of the glazers are want the cash out yeah if some of the glazers are want the cash out you can maybe see it very quickly one of the indications is going to be is when our loan payments are coming up and debt payments coming up, a Sir Jim does yeah. a debt equity swap. New shares are issued, devalues everybody's shareholding. The only reason I would say the Glazers would do that is because they know even if you devalue the Glazers' share percentage, pardon me, sorry, but they're guaranteed to get at least thirty-three dollars a sh- per share off Sir Jim. Even if they do, if they look their shares down to clear the debts. They're still going to get the same money off Surge in because they still have the per share value, not the per percentage value. So if he starts clearing debt off with debt equity swaps, you can see it's very, very likely the way this is going. And plus, the more shares that are issued, the more expensive it becomes for somebody else to buy the company compared to Surge in buying the company. Yeah, he already owns, um, like you said, 25, 28, 29%, whatever you want to call it. I think it's. 27% in the holdings, but at 28, it's 28% of the vote. So it's a massive voting percentage. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's interesting on that. You know, this morning, um, Paul, the training round, um, obviously it's been coming out for a lot with the with, with them looking to purchase the golf course. And now um, they went to look at Leicester's ground. What do you think will happen with the training round? And what do you think is next? How quick do you think this will start happening? Um... Probably, I would say, very quickly. Um, a lot of things being made about Sir Jim's input of funds. Now, the only way you can get advantage of being able to spend money in the transfer market, so I'm making the loss another way. United can make more losses to spend in the transfer market if they invest in infrastructure. So that 300 million goes in, or 200 straight away. To get advantage of that, you need to spend that money. So you can't get the £115 million losses if you're not spending that money. There was already talk about how in the summer they're looking to start work and fixing up the roof and all of Old Trafford. So I would say the training grounds, it may move very quickly because they've got the cash sitting there. Why not use it? Yeah. You know, Sir Jim has to make a stamp on this club. He can do it with the appointments. He can bring in the right people. I'm glad building a brand new state-of-the-art training facility. And that would be also another very high indication that I'm in this for the long haul, not for 18 months for somebody to come along and buy it out underneath my feet. Yeah, and you know, the thing with the training ground is what I found interesting was is is, is how the just a sheer size and it's like 100 acres they need. And the, the 200. Is it 200? They're looking at around 200. Uh, it's... 200 acres but 100 acres of buildable land so what that means is you have 100 acres that you can put buildings on and then another 100 acres for football pitches and stuff so it's you look at the lesser one the lesser one is an amazing facility the exact same way yeah, Newcastle one's good Le- Leicester Spurs are the best one in the country Liverpool moved to a new one as well um, hmm. what I found interesting was Leicester built on a on a golf course as well uh, when they moved and United are looking at a golf course as well. It's 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 because it's easy. When you're looking to buy that amount of land, it's better to buy that amount of land off one person than rather than having to deal with multiple people. So golf courses naturally they own a big massive acreage of land. You could find a plot of land outside Manchester, but all that land may be owned by three or four different people. So it's very, very hard to negotiate with three and four 
is you buy a golf course, you buy the whole land, the whole land's yours, you only have to deal with one set of people, not four or five different negotiations. Chelsea have got this problem with their football ground because the pitch is owned by somebody else. Is there is a trust, isn't it? The supporters group. Yeah. That's they supporters group. The problem, Bowley's got the same problem with them now as well, where he becomes... Funny, and there they are. They also actually own the naming rights of the Chelsea Football Club. Correct, yeah, they do. They, do <laughs> they, they own the naming rights of the club. So they yeah. lease the naming rights of the club to Chelsea. It's it's a protection yeah. that they put in, and they're massive. It's causing Boulder for them massive. Like Ramovich had huge problems with this. Huge, huge problem when they, when they were looking to move to the Barsi power station. It would be he had and Bowley's got the same problems, and I understand what you mean. If multiple people have uh, owned the land, it's much more difficult to deal with. Just my last question, then, Paul. I ask everybody this question, and and I want to finish on. Do you think Ten Hag survives this? Have you seen going into next season based on results, all these changes? Where do you see him in all this? The problem Ten Hag, I think, has is the problem of what happens to any senior management in any failing business when a new owner comes in. The senior management usually doesn't last long. They're usually gone. They're usually, they don't conflict with the same ideas that a new group are coming in. I think the problem Ten Hag has, um, a lot of reasons why Ten Hag may be struggling could come down to not having the right football structure, not getting the right things he needs, not having the right support as in somebody to turn around and tell him actually no not that player i know you want him but i've got a similar profile of player that's better for you kind of like what happened with edwards with uh klopp and mo salah he wanted your guy from dortmund edwards came back and goes salah would actually fit your system better and here's the evidence they went with salah ten Hag has a problem i think of what he's actually decisions on the pitch because he has questions to answer and not react why have you played the same system that doesn't work? Why are you constantly playing players that have not been performing? Uh, why haven't you been using the assets of like the youth? You know, you haven't been given them the chance. What you know, there's questions for Ten Hag to answer, and it depends on what answers he gives. The footballing structure. So, my prediction is, I think he'll, he'll not he'll not survive. Yeah, on the last podcast, I had Mick on from MUFC Realist TV, and I was discussing this with him, right? And and I was saying to Mick that I'm a big Ten Hag supporter, right? You know, I want him to work, you know. He did great last year. But you know that Tottenham game I watched? I really lost confidence in him in that. And I'll explain to you why. It wasn't... One, we use... We, you know, we said we've got injuries. Tottenham had injuries, right? They had pretty much a C team out. Then it was like, well, you know, and we were we were we were outplayed by a C team and a manager that hasn't managed at the level of Ten Hag, but has got an implementation of style and play given to his team. And I was thinking, like, we should be doing that. Why are we not doing it? And I didn't see in any of the games that we've played any changed for me to think he and it's going to turn around. It gives me it gives me Solskjaer's last season vibes where we're really on hope that next game, next game, next game, and time will just run out for him. I just don't he's not helping himself, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Um the game for me that really got me and got my row up was the Wigan game. You played Onana. You've played Scott McTominay. You've played the same way. 
It's it, and yes, we had a load of chances. We could have won that game four or five nil. But as I point out to somebody, yeah, we created more chances, but the opposition was le- levels below us. So of course we're going to create more chances. Problem I had is the same frailties in the system were being exploited by a League One side. That is not sustainable. If they had a better finisher, we could have lost that game. The the cutbacks were still there. The the one pass to split our whole midfield open was still there. The same deficiencies are still there, and I don't see him changing anything. And as I say, Onana, play the kid keeper. That's what the FA Cup's there for. If me and you can see these problems, why can't these... I'm failing to understand like what they're seeing that we're not seeing. This is why I say I can't judge if Ten Hag will survive or not because I don't know what answers he's going to be giving any else. And I think Ten Hag is a real problem if he tries to bluff and tries to say, I've not been backed because you're going to have people coming in that know football, no performance related things and going to go, what is the main job of a manager is to get results and to get the most out of the players he has. If you don't have the players available for your injury, that's an excuse. I'll accept that excuse. But if you don't have the players available for your injury, but you're still playing the same way, that hasn't worked in 20 odd games. You're not you're not doing your job. And it's quite simply you're not doing your job. I don't think he gets past the end of Feb, personally. Well, maybe into March. <laughs> you know, you have to let any mean Wolves. I know there's some other games I've forgotten about which games there. I was looking at this earlier. I just can't see him be and the thing is it's not like he's trying to try something, it's just pure dire. And you think we're worse than Solskjaer. I was saying this to Mick, I was saying it's like Solskjaer's last season and then anything in between didn't happen and we've gone back to that point again of where Solskjaer left. And we've... It's, another thing, it's another thing I don't understand with people. Um, and it really, really bugs me. Everybody says Ten Hag overachieved last season. Now, you can make the arguments for that, but the season before Ollie was, uh, the season before where Ollie got sacked in November time, October time, I can't remember, the consensus in the fan base was if you put a proper manager and this team will win the league. That was the consensus. That was the consensus. Rangnick came in and said we need to get rid of half of the players and he couldn't work with them. And honestly, I think it's not going to be the same thing. People say player power will win again if Ten Hag goes. My argument is no. Ten Hag may go, but the players will be out the door along with them. Uh, you, they're not going to get rid of Ten Hag and keep all these players and go. We'll give the players another chance under the manager. No, they will get if they get decide to get rid of Ten Hag. They'll get rid of Ten Hag. But see all the players that haven't been performing or have, you know, not up to scratch. They'll be gone too. It doesn't. The buck doesn't stop at the managers when you have proper people coming in on a footballing level. They'll get rid. Also, I see another problem with Ten Hag because there's going to be two people straight away in the sights of. Of any else, I would believe, and that's going to be Onana and Anthony, especially Anthony, a high-paid asset that is not performing on any level whatsoever. Now, when you turn around to Ten Hag and say we're going to get rid of your two main guys, how's he going to accept that? Is he going to argue? Is he going to push? Is he going to try and veto it? That may be another problem for him. I was this more philosophy than ability. I was listening to the Muppeteers and they made a very valid point. They were saying that Ten Hag will not give up his vetoes or transfers, which will eventually just lead him to losing his job. 
and the goal it's very likely he 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 does that. And it's just very sad that he's got to this point. I really believed in him and I really still want it to work, but I've just not seen anything you think. You know, you're lucky you've got this much. You, he's lucky that this is a takeover going on. He would have been sacked way before. This at Barcelona, Madrid, he would have been gone time ago. As I said, as I said to somebody, I said to somebody and I was saying, it's not that I don't think Ten Hag will achieve under a proper football, or wouldn't achieve under a proper footballing structure. But I've made this point. He would achieve under a proper footballing structure if that if he was that footballing structure's man. Kind of like how Klopp was given time because he was that footballing structure's choice. The way Man City built up Man City because Pep Guardiola was that footballing structure's choice. Arteta is the Arsenal's footballing structure's choice. Ten Hag isn't these guys' choice. They may want to go in a completely different direction and go, we want them to go for the long term. We don't see it with Ten Hag. We need to move them on and build this squad in a different image. And as I say to people, we've screamed and we've screamed and we've begged to get footballing people put in charge. If their decision is to get rid of Ten Hag, we're going to have to roll with it and do not be reactionary when it doesn't work out straight away come the next season. If these guys think moving Ten Hag on is the right choice, we have to let them roll with it. If they feel terribly in three years and nothing changes, then you can go, what the fuck are you guys doing? Sorry, Schwartz. (laughs) But, uh, you know, the same thing could happen. You could keep Ten Hag back and then it fails. And then again, they'll be like, why didn't they get rid of them? It's a a no-win situation unless you get it absolutely 100% right. Who do you think they'll replace? If they are to replace him, who do you think they'll replace him with? Oh, God only knows. After that CEO appointment, I don't want to predict any replacement. <laughs> I don't want to repeat, uh, pick anybody. Um, it depends what direction they want to go. Maybe you'll get an idea once they get the, the sporting director in and you get the head of recruitment. But Let's hope it's not Gareth, Gareth Southgate. Uh, I don't think it'll be Star, Gareth Southgate. Um, uh, as much as everybody likes to go on break the FC, I do not see Gareth Southgate getting the United job. Um you want a, a younger manager, you want a manager with ideas, somebody that can work with the youth, somebody that's not, you know, you bring in Gareth Southgate, you're basically bringing in somebody that, again, that's shown he's stubborn with his choices of people and won't change from that. You can say that with the England team. Why would you want to bring that into a club situation? You know, the pressure of Alan Southgate has had at England, but is still stuck to the same principles. And, <laughs> you know, you don't have to be a footballing expert to go, why are you not using the peripheral attacking talent that England has? Yeah, I think it'll probably be along the lines of Otter, Deserby, Hansi Flip. These are the main buzzwords that I've been hearing. Uh, Alonso? Would you take Alonso? Well, look what he's doing in Germany at the moment. Is it Alonso? Yeah. I've got the name wrong. Med Alonso. Have you Alonso at Leverkusen? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But would you They're take the league? Well, we're taking an ex city chairman that's you know it's not about your, it's not about it's not about their affiliation to what clubs they have. And do you remember Solskjaer was a Liverpool family <laughs> Yeah, but he's Paul I, I I remember Paul Lynch going to Liverpool, even though he went yeah. into to Liverpool and I and Michael Owen went from Newcastle. They just never accepted and the problem no, is No, they're, they're not accepted, yeah. 
Yeah, it's very difficult. It's very difficult, though. But then you look yeah. at you look at that CEO. You look at the CEO coming from City. The man went from nine k followers on Twitter to above fifty k. I'm, pr- I'm pretty sure most of the United fan base. He must have been looking at his phone that he must have got the message from Manchester United. We're going to have to announce your thing, and he must be just sitting looking at his Twitter notifications, going, "We better make the right choice." <laughs> yeah, I think I think um, Xavi Alonso is doing really really well. I forgot the guy in Portugal. I keep forget his name. I think he's at Benfica. Um, I forgot his name, but. I think there'll be something, but I just hope Ten Hag, because we spent so much time trying to get Ten Hag, we wanted a coach that could, Solskjaer, according to the press, managed on vibes, now everybody's saying he didn't, he actually had a fucking idea on what he was doing, he actually had a well, you look at you, 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 you look at Carrick and you look at McKenna, they were the yeah. people that cooked the United team. 100%, 100%, and the thing with Solskjaer was he actually had a system, we used to play three at the back in some games, we played four other back in some. Yeah, we were counter-attacking. He fucking had an idea on what he was doing. And the- well, he tried to get the most out of the players we had. He knew we can play any other way. Yeah, absolutely. And then McKenna was shit, apparently, and Carrick was shit, and now look what they're doing, and fucking this guy's shit. Now you think, fucking hell, everybody can't... You know what would be interesting, um, just to finish off? If they didn't hire Dan Ashworth and they hired Ralph Ragnick, that would be all the blue, and that would be very interesting. I think, I don't think so, because Ragnick, the way I've looked into him when he's gone in to build football clubs, it's the ref Ragnick way, and that's it. If you look at the way this Bradcliffe talks, you look at the way, the, I, I can never pronounce your CEO, Umar, or how do you pronounce his name, The our new CEO, I might just like, sorry? Omar Barada. Omar Barada. Uh, Omar, I'll just call him Omar then. Rather than trying to butcher a rather than butcher a second name, if you look at the way they and guys talk, it's all about cooperation, um, coming in, discussing ideas. Ralph Ragnick, the reason why he was successful when he built clubs is he built them in his image. I don't think they want to go down that way. You look at City. City is not built in anybody's image. It's everybody coming together. I would be surprised if we actually see a few more people jump ship as City and come over to United. Yeah. Let's hope it's Pep Guardiola. <laughs> you know. I'm just saying. I'm just saying as well. We should mention as well. People have been asking about Omar's um, uh, involvement in this 115 charges. Let's just do what good lawyers do. We'll give him immunity and let him sink the ship. You know, maybe, maybe on his uh, maybe on his car ride over to Manchester, he accidentally leaves his laptop sitting in the back seat of the taxi for somebody to find. I think he would have had he he would have had some idea on what was going on because of the positions he's held. Oh yeah, at, yeah. Of, you know, there's, there's... he may have the idea, but the question was he culpable in it? Now, having to do what your bosses tell you and designing the fraud that may or may have not have gone on are two different things. So yeah, he's yeah. but I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure I anything else would have done yeah, with due diligence. Like... On Sunday morning, I think he has he would have known what's going on just because of the positions he was in. I think, but when it comes to the implementation of bosses, I think legal counsel, CEO, head of football will be more involved in actually making it happen. Um, mm. And secondly, I think um, Ineos would have done this uh, into him. They, you know, uh, you don't want to end up with like, what was he called at Newcastle? Um, the, the mid- oh, the chairman? That got no, no, the midfielder oh. that got suspended. Tonali, is it Tonali? Oh. Oh, Tanali, yes, with the 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 the, the, the betting stand on them. So I'll, time will tell. I think um, we'll see what happens. But apparently, a lot of execs have left. And if he, you know, if we could take a couple of more of their guys, why not? They've done a fantastic job. 
Yeah, from the footballing side, let's not go anywhere near their uh, their operational side. Stay away from Absolutely not. Paul, it's been a pleasure. I'm sure we're going to yeah. do this again. But thank you so much. No. Yeah, thank you. It's been great, man. Nice to get the words out without having about 50 million people screaming in my ear and spaces going, you're wrong. <laughs> Absolutely. We'll do this again very soon. Yeah, no problem. Cheers, mate.